You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Well, good to be with you again this week, Northway Church. Glad you are with us online here. If you got a Bible, I would love for you to turn with me to Romans chapter 8 once more. We're going to be in Romans 8 this week. We are going to continue in our series on a theology of suffering. And sometimes I don't know what could be worse, the suffering itself or a four-part series on suffering. But nonetheless, if you've been with us, here's what we're trying to do. We're trying to lay out a biblical framework uh, of God's design for the believer in the midst of suffering. And so far, what we have looked at, we have looked at God's purpose in suffering. We've looked at our response to suffering. Last week, we looked at our hope that we can have that anchors us in the midst of suffering. And this week, we're going to look at the believer's security in the midst of suffering. So Romans chapter 8. Now, one of the chief struggles that I know that I've seen and experienced when it comes to the trials of my own life and the trials of others around us is specifically the challenge that comes of how the enemy begins to play on us in the midst of our sufferings. We've spoken a little about this in the previous weeks, but specifically what I've, what I've experienced and what I think the scripture is gonna show us, there's four common lies that the enemy loves to whisper to us when the bottom falls out. Four common lies. See if you can identify with one or more of these lies. The first lie that tends to come down the pike in the midst of our sufferings and trials is the lie of opposition. The lie of opposition. Because my whole world is falling apart, because the earth seems to be kind of closing in around me right now, we can start believing the lie that what it is that is opposing us is actually stronger than the God who holds us. We can start believing that actually the opposition, the whether it's persecution or just traumatic suffering or some hard breakup or loss or terminal illness, whatever it is, is that this thing is opposing me more than God is for me. And that's one of the lies we can experience. The, the second lie though, that we're prone to experience in the midst of suffering is the lie of accusation. In other words, we're in the midst of these sufferings and you start believing that maybe the only reason I'm in this suffering is because of something I've done. Maybe this is some mistake in my past, some stupid decision that I made, and, and this is God judging me for this. And, and you hear the, the lie of the enemy whispering to you going, see, like none of this would be happening if you hadn't have done this. If you, if you hadn't have said this, or if this failure wasn't a part of what you did, then none of this would be happening. You start hearing these accusations start coming at you that somehow this whole thing is my fault. If only I could have done more, then maybe, and these accusations plague us and we begin to believe the lie that the accusations of my past are stronger than the promises of God for my present or the security he has for my future. The third lie though that we can tend to believe is the lie of condemnation. And that is considering the opposition and the accusations that are coming against us in the midst of this trial, all of it is just simply evidence that I have indeed been judged and I'm not forgiven by God and that I stand condemned right now. And these sufferings are just evidence of his condemnation towards me and the fault that has been found within me. And, and we feel this continual shame, uh, sense of shame and, and condemnation in the midst of our sufferings. And 
these sufferings begin having a way of making us question whether God's grace is really grace, but rather than wrath. And, and, and that's one of the lies we can believe. And then there's a fourth lie, and maybe this lie is the greatest lie of them all. It's the lie of separation. The fact is that, that, and this is probably the easiest one to believe in the midst of this, that ultimately because I'm suffering, it's evidence that God has abandoned me. God has loosened his tether from me. God has turned his face away from me. And God has forsaken his promises towards me. And, and because I stand condemned, then now I am thus separated from God, eternally separated from God in the midst of it. Maybe this is evidence that I have lost my salvation somehow because of the pain and the suffering that I'm walking through. If you notice all four of those lies, they tend to come in sequential order. Meaning if the opposite, opposition against me is real, then the accusations against me must be true. And if the accusations against me are true, then then certainly the condemnation must be justified. And if the condemnation is justified, then indeed, certainly I must be alienated and separated from the God that said he once loved me and apparently doesn't anymore. Like this is some of the greatest lies that we can tend to believe. And so what Paul is going to do, what we're gonna see at the end of Romans chapter eight is he's gonna respond to each of these four lies and counter them with four assurances. He's gonna essentially tell us that for the believer in Jesus Christ, the one who has been chosen by God, who's before the foundations of the earth, who's been predestined in his love to his redemption. If this is what you're believing, these lies that they're somehow greater than what God has already promised you, then you need to know those lies are from the very pit of hell. They are not true. He's gonna say, if you are in Christ, then you are secure. No matter what hardship may come, no matter what persecution may come, no matter what suffering you walk through, what trial you walk through, no matter what opposition, accusation, or, or condemnation, none of those things can ever separate you from the love and the security that you have in Jesus Christ. This is the argument that he's gonna have here. And in fact, in Romans chapter eight, Paul begins in Romans chapter eight, all the way into chapter nine, this section of Romans where he is speaking to the security that the believer has because of the election that the believer has in Christ, that we have been predestined before the foundations of the earth to be saved in Jesus. And therefore we're secure. Now, I realize I just dropped the forbidden E word and the P word of election and predestination. These are terms that many of us can have problems with, especially in the book of Romans, this idea that God would choose some and not others. And this is exactly what Paul is speaking to, but you need to understand, and we're gonna get into the details of this doctrine later when we, uh, later in the year, when we actually get to the book of Romans. But what Paul is simply arguing in Romans when he's talking about sovereign election, you, you need to understand when Paul penned this portion of scripture under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's not as if he woke up that morning and said, man, gosh, what, what is something I can write today that, that can really jack up Christianity for, for the rest of eternity? What, what, is some, what is some doctrine I can come up with that's just gonna make people mad at God? I got it. I'm gonna talk about sovereign election and predestination and then everybody's gonna be bitter at God because he chooses someone else. That's not why Paul penned this. Paul is writing this 
out of the love of God that has been revealed to him, he is writing to assure the believer who's walking through their trials, as we saw last week in the first part of Romans 8, that no matter what you walk through, God cannot lose you because you did not choose him. He chose you and what he chooses, he saves and what he saves, he secures. That's the whole point of this section. It's, it's Jesus saying in John chapter 10, whomever the father places in my hand, no one can snatch them from me. They're mine, they are secured. And it's Paul saying in the biggest game, worldwide road, Red Rover that's ever been played, guess what? You got to come over. And, and, it, and it's, if God didn't save anybody, he would be perfectly just in doing so because of our sin, but because he has chosen to save some and secure them. It is only out of his sheer mercy and grace. And the believer is meant to read this section and not be mad. If you come out of this section being mad at God, you've read it wrong. We are meant to come out of this section in humility and a posture of worship and exaltation of Jesus and the blood-bought salvation that we've been given that has secured us. And so as a result of that inaugurated idea, what Paul is going to do in verses 31 to 39, which is what we're gonna look at here. This is gonna be Paul's poem. This is Paul's anthem, his song of response for what God has done to save his elect. And what he's going to do is he's gonna talk about the security that that kind of election leads to. Four questions you're gonna see in this passage of scripture with four assurances. If you're a note taker, if you're an outliner, here's where we're going. Next to verses 31 and 32, you can write the phrase, no opposition. Next to verse 33, you can write the phrase, no accusation. Next to verses 34 or verse 34, you can write the phrase, no condemnation. And then next to verses 35 to 39, you can write, no separation. Paul is gonna show us the security we have that no trial can ever take away from us. Let's look at the first question, verse 31. Paul says, what then shall we say to these things, the, the things of election, the things of God's salvation? He simply says, if God is for us, then who can be against us? In other words, let me ask you this question. Is there such thing as opposition to God's people? Is there any, anybody or anything out there that can be against us? our salvation, that can be against our security? Well, the answer to that is absolutely. Uh, we know right now the context of why Paul is writing Romans 8, why, why James wrote James 1, as we saw earlier, is because there's a physical enemy around us. There are literally people out there who want to do harm to us because of our faith in Jesus Christ, who even throughout church history and even today, lives are being lost because of one's faith in Jesus Christ. So there is a physical enemy that's around us, but we also know there's other types of, of enemies around us. There's other types of opposition. Some of our own family members are opposed to our faith, are opposed to our relationship with Jesus Christ. We've got coworkers, friends, neighbors who are also opposed. We've got creation, as we even looked at last week, even creation itself is against us right now. Murder hornets again, Our whole creation is against us but maybe none more personal and more powerful than our own adversary, the devil. And so, yes, there is such a thing as opposition to Christianity, opposition to our Christian faith. But Paul is saying in the grand scheme of things here, 
is there really anyone or anything out there who can really oppose you as much as God is for you? Paul's gonna say in verse 32, let's look at exhibit A of why there is no opposition ultimately. He says, he, that is God, did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In other words, if God was willing to give us the greater, that is his son, will he not also give us with him the lesser, which is our security in Christ for all eternity? In other words, what do you think is harder for God to give you? Is it harder for God to give you as a Christian, his son on a cross? Or is it harder for him to give you security for the rest of eternity in his son? Well, the answer is his son. To give up his own son on the cross, as painful as that would be, that's the standard of God's love for you and me. And the distance that he will go to by providing his own son sacrificed as an offering in order to purchase us. Like, to be honest with you, I might be willing to take a bullet for a few of you out there watching. No offense, but there, there may be a few of you that I might take a bullet for. But I dang sure ain't gonna give one of my daughters for you. And that's you, let alone an enemy of mine. I would not give my daughter over my own child up for, but yet that is exactly what God did for us. He, he laid down his own son's life for us, his very enemies to purchase us. And in fact, this is what Paul said uh, earlier in Romans chapter five. He said, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, somebody might dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we're still rebels, still enemies, Christ died for us. There is no depth that God was not willing to go to reach you and I with the salvation that he had for us. And so what Paul is arguing here is that if God is willing to give you his son so that you can be saved, do you really think that he's gonna renege on you on the back end of this deal? Is he gonna go through all that work to lay his son down on the cross to get you saved only to lose you in the midst of a trial? No, that would be like God giving us a Porsche and forgetting to put gas in it. He's gonna finish what he started. He's gonna give us the means to carry us all the way through what he has already begun. But some of you will go, well, but, but you don't understand. This guy over here said this, or this girl, she was railing this against me, or, or what about this circumstance? Doesn't this prove? God says, stop. I gave you my son, you're mine. I cannot lose you. I will not lose you. And so no, there is no opposition that can come after you that is greater than God who is for you through his son. Second question, verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? In other words, is there any accusation that can come against you? And I say, well, Paul, actually, yeah, there's a lot. I know a lot of people out there who could probably bring a lot of accusations against me. Um, I think there's a lot of people who would love to try to convince God that, that I wasn't worthy of giving the free gift of salvation to. I'm sure there are many that are out there. All of us have a number of folks who could dig up plenty of evidence to try to somehow persuade God that we weren't worthy of being saved. 
Uh, I'll never forget one of the most sobering moments of my life is when I was called to be an elder at the village church in 2011. And they told me, you're gonna have to go before the body. We're gonna present you. We feel you're qualified according to the scriptures. And we're gonna present you to the body. And we're gonna give them a 30-day period to let us know if there's anything or any reason why you shouldn't be serving as an elder. And this this uh, 30-day period is extended to the 12,000 people that will be watching and all the podcasters around the world that'll be watching that. And I thought, okay, let me think through that for just a moment. I'm pretty sure there's some ex-girlfriends from my BC days. There's some teachers that had me as students who probably could dig up some stuff on me. That's a sobering moment to put your life on display and say, is this brother or sister worthy or not? You're gonna get some accusations more than likely there's some folks out there, but listen, here's the point. There is none greater who wants to accuse us in the midst of a trial than Satan himself. Listen to how Satan is described in Revelation chapter 12. John is given the news of the triumph of Christ. He says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come. Yes and amen. And the accuser of our brothers, that's Satan, has been thrown down. And he says, you know this accuser, the one who accuses all the saints day and night before God. Like listen to that definition of who Satan is and what Satan does. Day and night, 24 hours a day, the scriptures tell us that Satan stands before the throne of God accusing you and accusing me. It's Satan trying to plead with God going, you don't need to save them. Look what they've done. Don't you know who they are? Don't you know what they're capable of? Don't you know what they were thinking just this past week? You can't save them and is accusing us, especially in the midst of our trials. And Paul says, no, 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 wait a minute. Is there anybody who can really bring a charge against you, even Satan himself, that will actually stand? Is there anybody out there who could ever knock you out of the security that you have in Jesus Christ just because of some shameful act in your mind or in your past, whatever it may be? And the answer is no. Because at the end of verse 33, what is it that declared you righteous in the first place? Was it your own track record? Was it your own morality? Was it your own performance that justified you? No, look at the end of verse 33. Paul says, it is God who justifies. It is God who justifies. That word justify means to declare righteous, to declare innocent. Your performance didn't declare you innocent and secure. God is the one who authored that. Let me ask you a question. If the Supreme Court hands down a final decision, can you appeal that decision any further up the ladder? No, you can't. It stops right there. The same is true the Bible with God. The Bible says that, that whenever Satan or anyone else in your life seeks to accuse you in an attempt to make an appeal that you're not worthy of the salvation or that you're not Christ's, because of what he did on the cross, God tells us that those accusations are not heard. Why? Because it wasn't your track record. It wasn't what you did or didn't do that justified you. It was what Jesus did for you on the cross. 
He and he alone is sufficient for your justification. So no, in fact, remember that verse we just read from Revelation 12 telling about Satan, the accuser. Do you know what the very next verse says? The very next verse tells us why it is we can conquer Satan's accusations. They have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. Do you know what the testimony is that we have? It's the blood of the lamb. When we appeal for why it is that we are secure in Christ, it's not because of what we've done or not done. It's because of him who is perfectly sufficient for us on the cross to shed his blood and to forgive our sin, cleanse us of all unrighteousness and secure us in his family forever. So for the believer who is suffering, you need to know there is no higher appeal than God himself. And God has declared the final verdict on your life. You are not guilty. And so there is no accusation that can derail you from that. Third question, verse 34, Paul says, who is to condemn? Who's to condemn? And here we see Satan doesn't just, doesn't just uh, accuse us for no reason. He accuses us for the sake of condemnation. When he pleads with God, he's asking God to change his gavel decision. He's asking God to reverse his decision and unsave us. That's what he's ultimately wanting. But can God, can God reverse his decision? Is there such thing as double, double jeopardy in God's courtroom where you can be tried over and over and over again for the same sins? No, there's not. In verse 34, here's the reason why. Because your penalty was paid once and for all by Jesus Christ. You see this at the end of verse 34. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, the one who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Again, we're not secure in our salvation because of what we do or don't do for Christ. We are secure because of what Christ did for us. In his death, he became our substitute, reconciling us to the Father through his blood. In his resurrection, he conquered the grave and made us as a result, a new creation with new life. And right now, John tells us that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father as our interceding advocate. Listen to this from 1 John 2, 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. You and I are righteous because of Jesus. We are secure because of Jesus. So let me ask you a question. Can you lose your salvation? Answer, can Christ sin? The answer is no. Then you are secure. And, and you are secure because he has conquered the grave for you. He's conquered death for you. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. And so did Jesus raise from the grave? Yes. Did he, he seated at the right hand of the Father? Yes. Then you're secure. There is no condemnation. Even in the midst of your trial, when you're believing these lies, you can know there is no condemnation against you. You are innocent and secure in Christ. Fourth, final question, final assurance. Verse 35, Paul says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he lists here seven scenarios of trials that can come our way. He says, can tribulation ultimately separate you 
from Jesus. These trials, that word tribulation that's used there, it, it literally means a hard pressed affliction. Is there any affliction that can come upon you that will ultimately separate you from Jesus? No. What about distress? The word distress that's used here, it's a word that literally means narrow place, means to be pinned in to dire calamity. Is there any corner that you can get backed into that there is not the promise that you will ultimately have deliverance from in Christ securely and confidently? No, there's no distress. What about persecution? And in this context here, persecution is a word that means to harass in such a way as to make one flee. Have you ever been so harassed by a trial you just wanna get the heck out? Can that kind of persecution that comes against you, that just makes you wanna quit, can it separate you from the security you have in Christ? No. What about famine? Famine here is the idea of being without food or drink that leads you to hunger or thirst. Maybe it's in a pandemic and the loss of toilet paper that makes you crazy. Whatever it is, is there any sort of famine that can actually remove you from the love of Christ and the security that's in him? No. What about nakedness? Nakedness here is the idea of being without shelter, being exposed to the elements, being in such impoverished poverty. Can even the most Poverty-stricken situations, can it separate you from what Christ has promised you? No. What about danger? Danger is the idea of peril that is bringing you to the very brink of death. Can you be brought to the brink of death and still be secure in Christ? Absolutely you are. Not even danger can take that from you. And then lastly, he lists sword, which is just death itself. Can even the grave separate you? No. Seven things here, seven kinds of suffering that Paul lists here. By the way, Paul had gone through all seven of these. Six of them are listed in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. The last one would be death itself that would come for Paul. He went through all of these. Can all these things that we just read, can they happen to a believer? Absolutely, they can happen to a believer. And in fact, in verse 36, Paul is gonna quote the sons of Korah from Psalm 44, who are lamenting the calamities that they were experiencing in their day at the hands of their enemies. And Paul is going to apply this to his day. Listen to this in verse 36. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are being regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Can that happen to a Christian? Can a Christian actually be slaughtered? for following Christ or for any other reason, absolutely. According to Paul and the sons of Korah, that can happen. But the question that Paul's getting at here is that when those things happen, can they actually separate you from Christ once you are his? Be careful because there is an entire camp that exists in our world, a theological camp that believes that what we just read is not true. There's an entire camp out there that you'll hear them preaching in some prosperity gospel that will teach you, not that these things won't separate us from the love of Christ, but rather the love of Christ is what would separate us from those things. Do you catch the difference there? It's the idea that is, as a Christian, Loved by Jesus Christ, God will not let me go through tribulation. God will not let me go through persecution and famine and nakedness and peril and sword. Because why? Because I'm a child of the king and God does, he protects his children from those things. His love is what would protect you from going through those things. But Paul just got done telling us last week, as we saw in verse 17, that if we are children of God, children of the king, 
then we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, co-heirs in his suffering, in his suffering. So no, a Christian can and most likely will go through these things. So rather than these trials serving as evidence that we are not gods any longer, no, these trials, according to Paul, are actually evidencing that we are gods as we share with Christ in these sufferings. And so church, you need to know that's one of the biggest heresies that's in our day today. And this is one of the primary lies and temptations that the enemy wants us to believe in the midst of suffering that somehow God has forsaken his promise for us and has left us alone and left us uh, out of the salvation that he promised us. But he does not say here that the love of Christ will separate us from those things. He is saying here that those things will not separate us from the love of Christ. Instead, they will magnify it. And in verse 37, Paul says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Notice he doesn't just say we are copers in our tribulations. We are conquerors. And in the Greek, it's not just conquerors. It literally means super conquerors. It's the idea that while we may be defeated momentarily in our circumstances, for those in Christ, there is a surpassing victory that is ours in the midst of our sufferings. Why? Because you know that even the worst of circumstances can't separate you from Jesus. You know that even in this trial, you still win. How? Because of the love of Christ that has secured you and will carry you through. Paul's point here is not that Christ's love would give you an escape from trial, but that in Christ's love, you will triumph through your trial, ultimately and finally when you are in his presence. How sure is Paul that nothing can separate us from the love of God and the security that he asked for us in the midst of our sufferings? Look at verse 38 and 39. We'll close out here. For I am sure that neither death nor life, that's any event, nor angels, nor rulers, that's any being, nor things present, nor things to come, no time, nor powers, that's any political force or entity that's out there, nor height, nor depth, that's no place, nor anything else in all of creation, just in case Paul misses something there, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. There is, church, understand, there is no separation, even in the midst of your suffering from what Jesus has perched. There is no time at no place in no way can no body separate you from what Jesus has purchased. And that fuels us. This is Paul's anthem of praise here at the end of chapter eight. You and I are secure in Christ, not because we're more brilliant than other people to purchase that security of our own, but because God stooped down and he grabbed us. And he says through the scars of his son, I have purchased you. You are my son and daughter and I will not lose you. I will carry you through this storm. I haven't forsaken you. I've got you and I'll bring you through all the way to the end. So let me ask you something, church. As you read through back through that text, are you and I the focal point of any one of those verses? The answer is no. It is all about what God has done. The reason why there is no opposition is because God happens to love you even more than those who would oppose you. The reason why there is no accusation is because God has declared you righteous on the basis of his son, not on the basis of your performance. 
The reason that there is no condemnation is because your defense attorney is perfect and blameless. And even though the evidence is stacked against you, he's got the evidence on his wrists and on his feet to say, no, I, I say otherwise. She's mine, she's mine. And why is there no separation? Because God's love for you is not predicated upon your circumstances, whether you're in times of victory or times of suffering. It is predicated upon his son, Jesus Christ. And that is the anchor that will hold you throughout the storms of this life. For the believer in Jesus Christ, walking through tribulations right now, you have a blood bought security in Jesus Christ that will never let you go. So keep persevering, keep pushing forward. So do you see what we tried to do here in this little four part mini series is just to lay out a, a framework for, for suffering through the lens of God's sovereignty and goodness, that there is a purpose in our suffering. It's not detached from meaning. God under his sovereignty has allowed it because he's trying to do something in us and through us even if it means having everything else in the midst of our suffering stripped away so that we can just see that Jesus is most glorious. If all you get in the midst of your suffering is more of God than you've gotten everything that you need and you hold on to that and understand God is trying to do something in you to create a, a cultivation of you clinging to Jesus, that he would be your all sufficient hope and that you would hold fast to Jesus even as the world around you falls apart and that he produced in you a steadfastness and a maturity that will anchor you along through life storms. And even when the, the bottom falls out and it's so crazy and confusing around you and you're filled with so much uncertainty, you can posture yourself under the wisdom and the counsel of God. Receive his word implanted that then leads to an internal transformation of your, your affections and of your mind that then leads to an external transformation of taking the very comfort that you've received in the midst of your pain and going and giving it away to a world that so desperately needs it. And all the while, we persevere in hope that the pain that is right now is not the pain that will one day be. There is a day coming that will make our present sufferings not even worthy to be compared to the day and the glory that awaits us at the revealing of Jesus Christ, when all pain will be eradicated once and for all. And in the meantime, we persevere in hope and we persevere in security, knowing that Jesus has us. He cannot lose us. Oh, church, that we would be a people here at Northway Church, that we would be a people who would not allow our trials to interpret our theology, but to have our theology interpret our trials and show us who God is, unchanging, fixed in his character, show us he's worthy of the praise and trust, and that gives us a way forward to persevere in hope, knowing he will heal this someday. And so church, that's what this series is about. I pray it has been a help and a comfort to you, maybe in this day, but if not, certainly for the days are ahead of us. So with that in mind, I'd love to pray for us. Father, thank you for a series like this that we can pause in the midst of a global pandemic right now on top of all the personal areas of suffering and trial that so many of our members are walking through. God, we so desperately need to hear a fresh word from you that you've got us in this, 
that you are sovereign, you are in control and you are good. And those two things will never change even if our world does. And so God, help us as your body to trust in you, to see Jesus is lifted high and glorious and worthy of our clinging to. And God, would you be our all source of comfort in the midst of our trials? Father, we trust that no weapon formed against us will prosper. No trial will separate us from the love that has been given to us by you through Jesus Christ on the cross. Fuel us with this rich understanding of theology that helps us to endure and press forward and fulfill the mission that you have called us to, to bring glory to your name and make disciples of Jesus Christ. We pray this, God, for the glory of your name and the good of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.